Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us in this latest and the last episode of Chaser Takeaway in-depth interviews for this summer season with a leading expert on a topic or question or concern for British Army or Defence. Obviously, these reflect the views of two individuals engaging in this conversation, not that of the Army and Ministry of Defence. And today we're reflecting on um, Syria and what we have seen over the last decade. Um, you might find it a bit strange, but I think for a lot of us, um, the multiple layers of this conversation have often caused amnesia on what happened, how did this all begin, how did we find ourselves here, and that has the clues to questions or the answers to the questions of what might happen next. Um, and today we are um, um, joined by Sam Dagger, who's a leading um, journalist who reported from the Middle East for more than a decade. Um, you might have seen his dispatches on Iraq war and also um, throughout the Arab Spring and from the start of the civil war in Syria. In fact, I think it was one of the last um, foreign correspondents in the country before he was also asked to leave the country. And his book, which you can see on the screen that you should definitely buy, um, remains to be one of the most thorough and also unique writings on Syria because he traces from his personal contacts and conversations, power dynamics within the regime, understanding the regime's rationale um, and how it escalated violence and where things ended up because that's the regime ultimately that requires us to engage one way or another. Um, Sam, thank you so much. Um, I suppose the first question is really um, looking back at the year 2011, right? You were living in Damascus, I believe, at that stage. Um, how did this all begin? Um, a stable country with a lot of promising signs of engagement with the West. Everybody's trying to woo Bashar al-Assad. Um, and we had all hopes about economic reform and democratization and diplomacy might actually alter the direction. Fast forward 10 years, millions of refugees, hundreds of thousands of deaths. How did this all happen? Well, first of all, uh, thank you very much for this uh, opportunity. And, uh, and also thank you for your uh, thoughtful introduction. Um, I just wanted to clarify something. In 2011, I was covering it from uh, neighboring Lebanon. Yes. Uh, and uh, I was only able to go into the country in the fall of 2012. So it all started actually with protests in early 2011. Uh, there, there were both internal and external triggers uh, for these protests, but these triggers were not the reason, uh, e even though people focused on them. Um, there, there were much more fundamental uh, underlying causes for these protests. Uh, you have to remember this uh, family, by 2010, uh, they had been in power for 40 years, the Assad family, and also the Ba'ath Party uh, had been in by, you know, by then, by 2000, 2010, uh, had been in power for almost 50 years because, uh, you know, they, uh, they came to power in 1963 uh, through a military coup. So what the Assad family established when, uh, when Hafez uh, basically overthrew his own uh, comrades in, in the army and the security service to take over in 1970, so he uh, constructed uh, what I could call a blend of a, a cultish dictatorship plus uh, a police state um, with, uh, with legions of, of, of secret service uh, operatives and informants and, and uh, security services all over the country uh, watching people and, and also watching each other to make sure, you know, um, the, the, the regime is protected from any coup attempt from within. 
And on top of that, you can also add uh, almost a, a crime syndicate, a mafia-like uh, organization, a family. Uh, so, so a blend of all these three, three things I mentioned. And uh, so this regime or this state uh, wanted to uh, dictate how people thought, what people said, uh, and uh, was, was, was telling them, was disseminating all of this through schools, uh, through the workplace, th through the public space, through media. So it wanted to control, you know, even the inner thoughts of its citizens. I mean, that's what we're talking about. Uh, people revolt, revolted in Syria in um, the mid-70s and early 80s. And I think this is very crucial in understanding where we are now, that period, because the regime, uh, you know, the scale, obviously, maybe it was, it was a bit uh, on, on a smaller scale than what uh, Bashar al-Assad faced in 2011, but it was still like most of the country um, was, was in revolt and, and the regime going after all its opponents under the guise of fight, fighting terrorism. And you had tens of thousands of people uh, killed or disappeared forever in, in, in desert prisons. So this really caused a, a trauma, you know, uh, uh, for the Syrian people. And, and they never um, got a chance to, to deal with this trauma because, you know, after the regime uh, uh, crushed this revolt in a very bloody way, it, it really, I mean, the oppression just, uh, just increased because the regime wanted to maintain its control. So fast forward when, when the sun takes over uh, as, uh, uh, you know, uh, as president in 2000, in 2000, I mean, just around now, actually, uh, today, I think is like the, the, the 20th anniversary of when he uh, was handed power by his father who passed away. So uh, notwithstanding the circumstances of, of, of all of this, because I mean, uh, he was brought back from London where he was studying ophthalmology to take over after his eldest brother was killed in a car crash and he was uh, put on this fast track to become the heir. Even the constitution was changed to accommodate him because, you know, he was 34 and they had to change the constitution. Notwithstanding, you know, this sham referendum that they orchestrated and said that he won by 97%, notwithstanding all, any of that, the people had some hope because he was presented the, the, the regime presented Bashar al-Assad as the savior, as the reformer. And I think it was, what people don't understand, it was a very uh, a, a cynical attempt on the part of the regime to repackage itself. Uh, because this was in the context, if you, if you remember, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. So all these regimes had to almost like reinvent themselves if they wanted to, to survive. But at the core, it was the same brutal, bloody regime with this uh, modern, uh, you know, uh, soft-spoken uh, uh, face uh, with a beautiful wife born in uh, Britain and uh, with a flawless British accent and engaging, you know, uh, officials from all over the world and traveling all over the world. world. So they succeeded in actually, I think, fooling the world uh, and also to some extent fooling their own citizens for at least one year or two. But uh, any attempt, uh, you know, by the people to take advantage of this uh, new openness was was crushed. People were were just asking for reforms uh, within the system itself. They were not even calling for Bashar al-Assad to leave at that time. In fact, they wanted him to stay to shepherd these reforms. And what happened is he then uh, implemented these uh, uh, 
what he called himself like economic reforms or economic liberalization. But I think that's not an accurate way of, of looking at them because they were designed primarily to enrich the regime and its cronies. What, what, what Bashar al-Assad said, okay, I'll open up the economy uh, and uh, you know the wealthiest businessmen in the urban centers of Aleppo and Damascus, I mean, these are the most populous city, they're, they're going to be uh, the partners of the regime in, in, in this business cartel. Uh, his cousin was going to be uh, the vice chairman of this cartel over, overlooking, uh, you know, uh, all, all its investments and, and, and interests. And the bargain was, you know, to, to the Sunni majority, because the majority of the population in Syria is Sunni and Bashar al-Assad com comes from the minority Alawite uh, community. So his bargain to them was, uh, some of you, at least, you know, the, the prosperous people and, and, and the wealthy businessmen in the big cities, will be my partners in this regime, but you stay out of politics. Politics and the army and security is my domain, and you become my partners in business. And it worked, I mean, the bargain worked for these families, and, and it trickled down uh, to some extent uh, uh, to what I call like a budding middle class in the, in the big cities, mainly Damascus and Aleppo, uh, maybe Homs, which is the third city, and other cities, Latakia on the coast. But uh, the countryside was marginalized. Uh, which is where most of the people live. There's this, always historically been this urban, uh, rural uh, rift in, 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 in Syria, and it deepened uh, under Bashar al-Assad. So you had these uh, dis, uh, disenfranchised and marginalized people in the countryside. This is, I'm talking already like 2010. And also uh, another dangerous thing was, was, uh, that was happening uh, uh, many of the Sunnis uh, felt uh, marginalized. They're the majority. They felt uh, the regime only engaged, you know, the business elite and the clergy, you know, the, the clergy who actually were um, almost like towed uh, the, the, the regime line and, and were allowed to open mosques and have Quranic schools and all of that as long as they didn't, you know, go anywhere near politics. So uh, people felt uh, stifled. And by then the country was opening up. I mean, uh, there was internet, there were phones, so people were seeing what was happening, you know, outside Syria. And so all of these things were happening in 2010. And then, you know, the protests begin in, uh, in Tunisia in, in 2010, in December, and Egypt and Libya and, and in Syria. So th that's like what I call the external trigger. The internal trigger is what happened in Daraa. Some school ch uh, children, they scrawled some uh, anti-regime graffiti on a school wall, and the regime's response was to arrest and torture these, uh, these uh, children, and that's the internal trigger. And Sam, I think one um, really important aspect of your book is um, demonstrating how there was an intentional decision at the very early on of these protests to respond brutally, right? Of, of course, Assad Jr.'s father has done similar thing. There have been pretty much massacres before in Syria to protect the regime. Um, but it looked like from your book in some of the senior figures that who sought eventual asylum in Europe and et cetera, have clearly told you the internal dynamics that actually not everybody was up for such a brutal clampdown, but also not just towards the citizens. I've always been fascinated by the evil geniusness of releasing jihadis, so creating 
space for ISIS because you knew that's what will get Europe focused, America focused, and pulling away from Northeast so that they would know that YPG, PKK, at that time it wasn't YPG, but PKK related groups will dominate, then will pull Turkey away from toppling Assad to focus on the question of Kurds domestically. The evil genius of escalating violence seems to be a very intentional policy. And I think the title of your book captures that really well. I mean, Assad, or we burn down the country and pull the region, pull global affairs into this mess. Is that a fair depiction of what you observe? Absolutely. I mean, even Bashar al-Assad himself said, you know, um, if you come after me, the, the whole world will, will burn, not only Syria. I mean, he said it in a couple of inter interviews um, early on, and he spoke of these like uh, tectonic plates. I mean, he loves these anal analogies. And, and saying like, if you mess with Syria, then these plates are going to move and destabilize the whole world. So he was already warning of all of this. Um, and yes, I mean, as you, as you said earlier, the um, decision to uh, shoot and kill protesters from, from day one was deliberate. And it was coming from the very top, from Bashar al-Assad, from his brother, who uh, commands you know, the elite units of the army, Mahir al-Assad, from his cousin, Hafiz Makhlouf, who command, commands one of the most brutal uh, security uh, service apparatuses in Damascus, from other people, other commanders of these uh, uh, security services, who basically were uh, you know, junior officers under the father in, when he launched you know, the crackdown in the 70s and 80s. So, so they were shaped by that experience. So immediately they would say, oh, this is exactly like what Hafez al-Assad faced. We have to be tough from day one. So we need to actually scare people off the streets. So this is why uh, you know, by shooting and killing a couple of people, so uh, they thought that you know, all Syrians would be scared and stay, would stay home. And uh, e even like before, you know, the protests started in Dara, which is like the city in the south, uh, the, the security services were summoning like known opposition figures and were warning them, like, look, you know, it's, it's not going to be a picnic here like uh, Tunisia and Egypt and elsewhere. You know, don't, don't think about it because, you know, we're, we're ready to actually destroy Syria. In fact, they told one opposition leader back in February, you know, uh, uh, no stone will be left standing in Syria if you protest. So they, they already had that in their mind, that they would go all the way to protect the regime. So from day one, they were shooting and killing people on the street. But the problem is, it just widened you know, the, 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 the circle of, of, of bloodshed and, and the circle of opposition, because these were different times. You know, under Hafez al-Assad, there was no satellite TV stations. There was no Twitter and Facebook. I mean, here, the moment, you know, somebody captures like a, a protester dying, I mean, which is what happened in some of these places, sh uh, shot by the security services and actually dying on, on camera and then tweeting this or sending this, people all over the country, all over the world will be impacted by this. So actually the protests uh, grew bigger and bigger and there were attempts by, uh, uh, activists in in uh, Syria, and, and this is what the, the world forgets. I mean, these activists were from different backgrounds. They were not only Sunni Muslim. Uh, there were many. There were many Alawites from the same religious group as Bashar al-Assad belongs to. In fact, one of the characters in my book, Mazin Darwish, who is the co-founder of what they call the local coordination committees, these uh, grassroots uh, 
you know, organizations that were leading the protests and organizing the protests. He was Alawite. You had Druze, another minority. You had a lot of Christians in the beginning, many, many Christians. You had Kurds, you know, from the Northeast taking part. So all of this posed this threat to the regime. It's like, oh my God, all these people, the, the Syrians are, are, are uh, forgetting all the fear that I instilled in them of one another. Because you have to remember, this regime has always played on these sectarian fault lines and has always made people uh, fear one another because that's the only way you can prevail and dominate. So the Kurds were afraid of the Arabs and vice versa, and the Christians were afraid of the Muslims and vice versa. So all of a sudden he was saying, oh, people are coming together. This is dangerous. So this is far more dangerous to him than armed groups. You know, armed groups, he could say this is, a, this is an, an insurrection, just like any other city in London and Paris and Berlin. I'm just going to, the state will have to act to, uh, to maintain, you know, uh, the peace and, and law and order. So, so in the beginning, it, 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 was, it was really the, 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 the greatest threat for the regime was from the peaceful protest. So every attempt by, uh, by the protesters to occupy a major square, just like what they did, for instance, in in Cairo, in Tahrir Square, so they wanted to have a similar square in Damascus, uh, was met with, with utter carnage. I mean, people were shot, the snipers were positioned on, on buildings, shooting people, you know, as they were approaching the square. In Homs, they managed to occupy the square for 24 hours, and then a massacre. I mean, they killed like hundreds of people. We, need, we don't even know how many people were killed. In Hama, which is like, a, you know, the, the, the fourth or, or, or fifth largest city, which with its own history of, uh, uh, of, of, of brutality uh, by the regime, you know, this is a place where Hafez al-Assad massacred tens of thousands of people in 1982, and they decide to revolt in 2011. They occupy a square, and he sends in the army tanks and, 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 and to basically disband the protests and clear the squares. So from the very beginning, you know, the decision was, you know, we have to use maximum force to scare people off the streets. Uh, I mean, I can talk about the external actors or maybe oh, you well, want to. That's actually the right moment to come in because obviously external actors in the immediate geography are clear. Iran has always been a stakeholder in Syria, has always had that relationship with the Assad regime. Um, Turkey was always and at odds with Assad's father because he was also using the Kurds and PKK card. I mean, Turkish tanks were on the border in 1998 about to invade Syria for the same reasons that actually um, eventually they invaded Syria um, after 2011. Um, and then, but I think the elephant in the room and has always been silent is European and North American um, policies towards this, all of these developments, right? I mean, I think it's very fashionable for us to see Trump's erratic decision to pull troops out, um, you know, leave all the mess behind and, you know, put people into vulnerable position and all these ethnic fault lines again, gets a lot of criticism, but seems to me one of the most defining points of this was actually Obama and Obama's ambivalence and ultimate red lines and basically turning um, eyes away from use of chemical weapons and a whole level of violence in the country and the Russian arrival and dominance of the theater. Um, how has European and um, American um, policies or engagement with the question of Syria affected the direction of this war? Excellent question, and 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 I think in my answer I also incorporate how the other, uh, um, you know, outside players got involved in the conflict. So in the beginning, you have to remember, um, in 2000, um, there had been a period of engagement um, or re-engagement with the regime. I mean, let's put it that way, by uh, 
uh, Europe and the U.S. I mean, this regime has been on uh, the uh, U.S. list of state sponsors of terror since 1979, since actually that, that list was, was created. Uh, so the U.S. has always tried this carrot and stick approach, and so have, uh, you know, the Europeans. I would say that the, the France was, was the country with the most vested interest because it was the old colonial power, maybe the UK to some extent later as being, you know, the partner of, of the US uh, uh, in the coalition that invaded Iraq and toppled Saddam Hussein, if you remember Tony Blair. So engaging with Syria was, was part of that whole effort to try to stabilize the region. So there were always efforts, you know, this this what I call the carrot and stick, uh, you have to remember, you know, uh, when Bashar came to power one year later, you had 9-11, you know, which changed the world. And we're still dealing with the repercussions of that and the, war, and the U.S. so-called war on terror since then, basically. So during that period, uh, the, the, the U.S. and the Europeans, including the Brits, had it, uh, were saying, we can cooperate with this regime to fight terrorism. Uh, we don't have to designate him as, you know, a state sponsor, or we have to, we can forget about that for now if he shares intelligence with us on Al-Qaeda, because remember, this regime has always exploited terrorism and always had ties with Al-Qaeda and other uh, radical and terror groups throughout the 70s and 80s, and some of them are responsible for bombings. Yeah. In fact, it, even a German court, court determined, you know, that the regime was involved in a uh, bombing of a French uh, cultural center in Berlin um, in, in the 80s. So, so the, 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 the links are there with, uh, with like an array of terror groups, including the PKK in Turkey, which has always been used by the regime as a, as a boogeyman, you know, against uh, Turkey. So this regime has always used terrorism as a bargaining chip. So 2001, uh, uh, after 9-11, uh, the U.S. and Britain and other uh, Europeans say to Bashar, cooperate with us in the fight against uh, Al-Qaeda, share intelligence, and he does, and we will uh, engage with you, and we will hold you up as a reformer. So you have to remember, like, when people like Tony Blair and, and the foreign, uh, uh, you know, um, foreign minister of, of, of the United Kingdom at the time were, were praising Bashar, it was also out of self-interest, because they said, well, if we hold him up as a reformer, then you know, this kind of like justifies, you know, our cooperation with him, notwithstanding the history of this regime and this family. So this lasted for a while, but then they started to put pressure on him, the Americans to accept the new reality in Iraq. Uh, uh, initially, they wanted him to, to uh, uh, I mean, before Saddam was toppled, to stop uh, helping Saddam sell oil outside of the uh, oil for food program so that he can put the cash in his pockets and he refused. And then uh, they were putting pressure on him in, in, uh, in uh, Lebanon where the Syrians were the de facto occupation force by then saying, you know, you have to reign in Hezbollah or Hezbollah being the, you know, the, uh, the proxy of Iran in, in the, the main proxy of Iran in the region. So he was coming under a lot of pressure and then they passed a resolution in 2004 against him. Uh, then you had the assassination of Hariri, for which the, the regime was blamed. And then you had a series of, uh, of attacks in Lebanon and assassinations for which the Syrian regime was, was, was blamed. Also, the Americans were then 
realizing that Bashar Assad was helping the Iraqi insurgency in all its uh, forms and, and, and shades, from the, the Ba'athist nationalist pro-Saddam insurgency to Al-Qaeda in Iraq, facilitating um, you know, uh, their transit to, to Iraq from Syria, uh, hosting training camps at the border. And the Americans were like, this, is ha this has to stop. So, and, and, and obviously the UK at the time being part of the coalition, so they imposed sanctions on, on him over both Lebanon and Iraq. And that lasted almost until 2007, eight, when they felt, uh, well, maybe we should actually re-engage with him to try to stabilize Lebanon, to try to stabilize Iraq. Because if you remember by then, uh, the UK had pulled out from, from Iraq and the Americans were looking to pull out. Obama wanted to leave. So, so they said, okay, let's try to work with this regime. Let's try to work with Iran to stabilize both the, uh, you know, Lebanon and, 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 and Iraq. So, and then, so 2010, when the protests happened, the Americans and, and, and the Europeans were saying, you don't have to go. Just, uh, you know, institute some reforms and, and allow, you know, for political opposition to uh, participate, uh, uh, you know, just like, like any other country. And you can even run in, in, in whatever elections you hold yourself. You know, they were not even asking for him to leave. And they, at the time, the, the Americans and the Europeans sent uh, Turkey uh, and, and uh, Qatar to try to negotiate with the, with the regime. Uh, the, foreign, the Turkish foreign minister at the time, Davud Oglu, made a few trips. Uh, the Qataris even sent, uh, you know, the, the crown prince at the time, who is now the, the emir, you know, Tamim, he was the crown prince at the time, went to try to talk some sense into Bashar, you know, stop the killing, initiate reforms, you don't have to go. But Bashar realized, you know, the moment he makes one concession, that's going to be over for him and the regime. So he kept killing and, and, and ratcheting up the killing. And at that point, you know, the Americans said, and the Europeans, I would say in the summer of 2011, they said he's lost all legitimacy, he has to go. But then what? They, they just said, okay, you're no longer legitimate, you have to leave, and that's it. And, and at that point, this is actually a crucial moment, the summer of 2011, when it opened the way for the regional actors to get involved. So uh, America and Europe were saying, we don't want to get involved, we can't have another Libya, because remember, they had intervened in Libya, so they were like, we can't have this anymore. In the, uh, in the back of Obama's mind was Iraq, so he was seeing Syria as potentially another Iraq. So they pretty much delegated Syria to the regional powers. Turkey and Qatar had their own agenda. They uh, welcomed the Arab Spring. They, they embraced it. They encouraged it. They, saw, they rode the wave. They saw it as an opportunity to bring in their allies into power, which is, which is what they did in Tunisia and Egypt initially. And, and in even Libya, and, and they wanted to do the same in Syria, their allies being you know, uh, Islamist parties uh, from the Muslim Brotherhood specifically. So they felt they could do the same thing in Syria, so they began arming you know, groups, uh, initially defectors from the army, and then you know, citizens just taking up arms. And then the Saudis, who have a different agenda, they were threatened by the Arab Spring. Uh, they, didn't, they felt that these revolutions succeeded in Egypt and Libya and Syria, then their own citizens will be asking for the same thing. So they worked at cross purposes, uh, you know, with the Qataris and, and, and Turks 
supposedly they're all allies of the West. I mean, these are these countries, but actually they were working against each other in Syria. So whenever there'd be a new opposition body unveiled, you know, with much fanfare or, or a new rebel body or, 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 or uh, you know, umbrella group or whatever it is, you had these, these uh, players, you had Saudis basically trying to ruin whatever was, was established because they felt uh, Turkey and Qatar had too much uh, sway or influence, and then vice versa. So all of this uh, allowed for uh, ISIS to uh, take over parts of the country. I mean, there were specific uh, actions on the part of the regime, as you said, releasing a, a lot of the, uh, the militants and, uh, and extremists who had gone to Iraq, uh, you know, the previous decade uh, with the help of the regime. And then when they came back, the regime put them in prison to show the Americans that it was cooperating. This was uh, I, what I was talking about, the period between 2007 and 2010. So now the regime says, okay, now, you know, we don't have any interest in cooperating. The West is coming after us. So they released these people. They also abandoned, you know, entire regions on the border with Iraq which was, were immediately populated by ISIS. So now the regime can sit back and watch ISIS cannibalize, you know, the opposition fighters. And it, and it, it can concentrate on defending Damascus, the capital, which was its priority, and also maybe the coast, the coastal region, uh, which, you know, which has the, the ports and also the, the main support base by, by, for the regime. That's where the Alawites are. So th those were the priorities of the regime. And then the rest, you know, let it, let it all play out, basically. So when you have the attacks uh, uh, by ISIS in the West, um, here the Europeans, and, and if, I, will, I will remind you, I mean, Boris Johnson was the mayor of London at, at the time, and he said, the first thing we have to do is, is, is talk to Putin and Bashar and actually seek their help to fight ISIS. So bingo, Bashar, you know, he, he's back in the game. Uh, the UK is saying we need your help to fight ISIS, and then the both I would say the Americans and the Europeans make the decision to to delegate Syria to the Russians to say we don't want to get involved. You deal with it, you know, with the regime and all of that. We're just going to focus on fighting ISIS because that's our priority, which is I think very short-sighted because ISIS is the symptom of the problem, not the problem. The underlying cause is the tyranny, the oppression, the fact that the regime actually uses uh, extremism as a bargaining chip. I mean, that is the root cause of the problem. And, 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 and uh, uh, I mean, just one last comment. So fast forward to the Trump. And also, I think Obama's priority at the time was uh, reaching a, a nuclear agreement with Iran. You have to remember Iran, I mean, I, I talked about all these other players uh, Turkey, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia coming in on the opposition side. Iran from day one being, you know, this regime's partner and ally for decades came in, you know, on the regime side to fight and defend the regime and then sending its own Shia fighters, Hezbollah and others, even uh, Afghan Shia, Pakistani Shia, uh, Shia from all over the world to fight for the regime under the guise of uh, you know, protecting the shrines, because by then it was like becoming this religious war, and that helped both ISIS and the Iranians, because it, it, it kind of motivated people to fight. So now it is this complicated mess, and which is excellent for the regime, because everybody now forgets how it all started. So it's all very deliberate. Fast forward to Trump. Uh, I think Trump has basically 
pursued the same policy as Obama, which is disengagement. We don't want to get involved. Let uh, Russia, let Turkey, let the others deal with it. It's not our problem. I, I mean, I could talk about the Caesar Act, but I mean, if you like. You know, Sam, I think one final question, because we're running out of time. Um, okay. And that's where question on where the regime is now. I mean, obviously, it's cunning strategy of burning down everything to keep itself paid off to a certain extent. I mean, against all the odds, with all these major backers and a lot of fighting, he's still in power, his clique is still benefiting from whatever is there, but economy is not doing well, the currency is crumbling, and we have seen videos of his inner clique now expressing dissent, and clearly regime has its own clashes within itself over whatever the future might mean or whatever is left of the economy. Um, we have seen Turkish lira being, being used in the north because of the conditions of the current etc. Um, how are things now within the Assad regime and given where things are in the country with all these external actors holding substantial ground, how do they see the future of Syria and the possibilities that they have? I mean, do they accept limiting themselves to the areas you have listed, which there is a natural kind of home domain and they will let go of the northeast or the north or southeast and etc. as long as they can keep or is the aspiration taking time and coming to an agreement with the Turks through Russia, coming to an agreement with the Kurds again and using that tension again, they, will, they know Americans will lose, so they'll take back all of the country again. Is that the direction of where they see things going? Sure, excellent. I mean, I'll, I'll just say, um, mention a few things very quickly on where things stand at the moment. Uh, so basically, uh, to, uh, fast forward like 10 years later, um, the country is fractured. You have one part uh, uh, controlled by, I mean, the biggest part uh, controlled by the regime with the help of Iran and, and Russia. The moment one of these players withdraw, the regime will actually collapse. I mean, the only way the regime is able to maintain itself is by playing off these powers against each other. Uh, so, and, and in this area, you know, the, the regime controlled area, uh, again, with the help of Iran and Russia. So you could say, actually, it's an area uh, controlled by Iran and Russia, and the face of this control is Bashar al-Assad. Uh, I mean, that's really it. Uh, there are, there are, there's almost, uh, you know, one-third of the population. So you're talking about almost seven, seven, eight million people in that area. Another seven or eight million people are in other parts of the country that are beyond regime control. So you have Idlib in the Northwest, where you have uh, some uh, uh, groups, including the former affiliate of, uh, of Al-Qaeda, the Nusra Front there. You have Turkish uh, military and security presence. You have another enclave in the North around uh, uh, the, no the countryside north of Aleppo that's also controlled by, uh, by Turkey and its proxies. You know, uh, people uh, who are working for Turkey and empowered by Turkey. And then you had the Northeast where the Kurds are, who are in alliance with the uh, Americans and the Europeans and the Brits and the French. And, and the whole, you know, raison d'etre there is like they're uh, making sure ISIS doesn't come back. And then you have almost 7 million outside the country. So that's the remaining one third scattered all over the world. The majority of them in Turkey, but uh, you have also a substantial community in, in Europe, more than a million Syrians probably all over Europe, with the largest concentration being Germany. So that's what we have. We have also more than half a million killed, 
We have uh, hundreds of thousands maimed. We have over a hundred of thousand disappeared forever. Uh, you have uh, the cost of rebuilding the country anywhere from 250, uh, 250 million, uh, billion dollars to 400 billion dollars. I mean, that's the, the estimate for rebuilding the country. Uh, you have, uh, you know, uh, people say, you know, the Syrian army, there's not, nothing, not much left of the Syrian army. Uh, I would say maybe mercenaries under the guise of a Syrian army, uh, because nobody wants to serve in the army. This, this is an army that depends on conscripts. So uh, even people who say they're loyal to the regime don't want to serve in the, in the army, and they rather leave the country. So you have uh, units of the army that are loyal to Russia, and they are being used by Russia in, in places like Libya as mercenaries. You have uh, uh, then uh, other people who used to be with the army and are now like so-called rebels. They're being used as mercenaries by Turkey in the north. And then you have others who are serving in militias controlled by Iran. So that's the army. Uh, so I would say the regime is really at its weakest point. And there's this like false narrative that it actually has, has won. And now things are really are made much worse by this economic crisis that you, 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 you touched on. I mean, inflation is rampant, life is miserable. Syrians are for the first time, I mean, not even during the war, things were this bad, were, are going hungry, even in regime uh, held ter uh, territories. Uh, and the, the regime has not, doesn't have much to offer people at this point. Uh, its allies cannot bail it out anymore because Iran had, had given the regime something like $30 billion already. Iran is under sanctions. So what is Bashar al-Assad left to do? He has this shakedown of all these regime cronies, including his cousin, Rami Makhlouf, uh, to try to get money, basically, to, 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 uh, to fund, to, to replenish the coffers of the regime. Uh, you have now measures like, uh, uh, you know, imposing like a, an entry fee on, on Syrians coming, Syrian citizens coming into Syria from outside, mainly from Lebanon. So they have to pay $100 and they get back uh, Syrian pounds, but at the official exchange rate, which is half the, the, the market rate. So extortion basically from people to try to survive. And in the context of all of this, you have these US uh, sanctions uh, under what's called the Caesar Act. Uh, you know, For the first time, the US will impose uh, 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 sanctions on any third party doing business in the regime, and it also tightened all the sanctions on Bashar al-Assad and its cronies. And the U.S. is the the message the U.S. is sending him is you don't have to go; just change your behavior, disassociate yourself from Iran. Um, I mean, there are like seven asks by by the U.S. And so now, what what does Bashar al-Assad do? I mean, he's probably going to do what this regime has always done, wait things out, hoping that perhaps, you know, Trump will be on his way out uh, in, uh, in November, a new administration maybe will be more uh, open to, in, to dealing with him, engaging with him, perhaps. Uh, also hoping maybe the coronavirus will get worse around the world, so that will distract people from Syria and, and I mean, that's how the regime operates, just waiting things out. Unfortunately, the people who, the ones who suffer are the citizens, as, as, as is happening. It's almost as if, like, you know, the, the, the title of my book, Assad, or We Burn the Country, it's like 
Assad or, you know, we've already burned the country. So, so now Assad or you will even suffer more on top of a burned country. So they, really that's where we are. And, uh, and finally, uh, you have elections next year in Syria in 2021. If nothing changes, actually the regime intends to, to run uh, in those elections. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Bashar al-Assad intends to run and renew his term for another uh, seven years. I mean, when I say elections, I mean, uh, in quotation marks, uh, because I mean, these are, these are, this is a show organized by the regime. And uh, so now basically he's put, uh, he's, uh, he's now in this position where all the power is concentrated in his own hands because he went after everyone, including, you know, his cousin, uh, who, you know, the, 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 the Rami Makhlouf. And so more power is, is in his hands. And, and this, is, this is the danger. I mean, the moment, if anything happens to him, if he dies, unless Russia steps in and tries to, uh, you know, save the country and try to make sure, you know, the country doesn't completely collapse, uh, you're going to, to have a disastrous situation. You will have, uh, you could see units of, uh, you know, the regime, people in uh, the fourth division, which is controlled by his brother, fighting ag against other units in the Republican Guard. You could see the security services themselves splintering. So, so basically, uh, these militias within the regime coming out and fighting each other, you could see Iran and Russia trying to fight for control, like who can who controls, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the remains of this country, Bashar al-Assad goes. You could see the Kurds uh, emboldened by, you know, the, the disappearance of Bashar al-Assad to try to come out and, 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 and really establish their de facto, um, you know, canton, and Turkey reacting to that and the situation becoming worse. You could see people in the south, you know, on the Israeli border, the Druze trying to you know, have their own enclave with the help of Israel, because Israel is, is interested in making sure, uh, you know, Iran and Hezbollah remain, uh, I mean, they are, the, they are there in the south now. Uh, and that's, that's why Israel keeps bombing, you know, uh, Iran, Hezbollah, and Syria, because it wants them to move away from the border. So you could see more tension and, and conflict on the border with Israel. Yeah. Um, sadly, Sam, I think your rightful observations just reminds me that at the moment there is really no quick solution or end to sadly suffering of Syrians and this broken kind of geography that has seen so much suffering last one decade. Um, Sam, thank you so much for your time. This has been a very rich and deep conversation. It made me remember a lot of things that happened last 10 years that somehow our focus on ISIS has been a myopia that actually caused us to ignore where things are overall Syria and what that might mean. Um, and your points are very well taken about this not confusing the causes with the symptoms. Um, and if you want to buy Sam's book, I highly recommend it. It's a thorough study, which will be a great resource as we reflect on the future and look back at what happened. And thanks to everybody who watched this. Um, if you want to watch all the videos that we produced for the last few months, you can do so at www.chaser.org.uk. And thank you. Thank you, Zia.